My name is Charlie, and I'm a member here at Redeemer. I'm going to be reading 1 Peter 2, 9-12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the, ex- the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. <clears throat> Keep your conduct among, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of God. Thank you, God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Um, you guys got to meet Brian earlier. Uh, I, he's one of our pastors here. I'm the other pastor. My name is Ryan. You'll get used to it, I know. Um, and even if you call one of us the other name, like it's so close that it won't matter. We'll just respond. So it's okay. Uh, but I did want to spend a, a, a quick minute this morning just reminding everyone this is the last week of our We Are the Church sermon series. Brian reminded us all that upcoming is the equipping series. So Bible study, uh, uh, Bible class, uh, whatever you want to call it, on Wednesday nights. But this is the last week of our sermon series on the same top topic. They're complementary. They're, they're meant to work together. And so um, next week, we will be moving back into Joshua. So uh, go back to the Old Testament and be reading. start reading Joshua 13. Uh, we're going to go through the whole chapter of Joshua 13 next week. It's going to take hours. I'm just kidding. Uh, it, it'll be a normal 35-ish minute sermon. But um, yeah, next week we're back up in Joshua. Now, this series was meant for, like Brian mentioned about the class, was meant for us um, to just understand a little bit deeper, be reminded of things that we've all known. Maybe some of us were learning, but, but for a, a lot of us, I think, um, that we have at least uh, an understanding of the concept that we as the church are God's people. And so it's helpful for us to slow down, take a few weeks, and just remember what that means for our souls. Remember what that means for our hearts um, and, and for being the church when we leave this building, as we go out into our lives uh, and, and live in light of, of being God's people. And so um, we wanted just to, to hit a few things. You see on the screen, changed, chosen, and empowered. That we as the church are changed by the gospel. We're chosen into the family of God so that we would proclaim this transformation, this adoption to the world. And we're empowered by love. We're empowered by God's love through the Holy Spirit to live changed lives. To make disciples just simply from our transformation. We'll talk about that a little bit more this morning. Um, but we need to understand this, this word empowered. Another word that you might uh, be familiar with is motivated. What, what fuels our behavior, what motivates and empowers our behavior as Christians? And it's pretty widely accepted that um, fear and love are the two primary motivators. Like when we're thinking general categories, general terms, Fear and love are the primary motivators. And we could probably all stop and think, okay, how, what motivates me in various parts of my life? You could probably tie it back to fear of something or love of something, love for something. Maybe a little combination of both. 
Now, a, a lighthearted example, this is a, a fictional story, but from the comedy series uh, Parks and Recreation. Do we have any Parks and Rec lovers in here? We make a lot of office quotes in here, but we also love Parks and Rec. It's okay. I'll explain if, you're, if you don't, aren't familiar with the show. Um, there's two characters that are having a debate. What's the better motivator? They're both bosses within city government, and so they're trying to understand how should we motivate our people. And one of them, Ron, is arguing that it's fear all the way. Fear motivates people to get the job done way better than love does. Uh, and um, what's, uh, Chris, uh, Rob Lowe's character, uh, says that love is the better motivator. And so they, they decide, as good people do, good bosses do, to perform a human experiment on their, on their employees. So they pick Jerry. Jerry. Every show's got a Jerry. Jerry's the butt of the joke. He's the slapstick comedy guy. They, they show scenes of him tripping over things and um, destroying major events uh, in the show. But uh, Jerry is the subject of their experimentation. They give Jerry the task of sorting two stacks of folders and while he's sorting the red ones, Ron is threatening him and telling him that he's going to fire him if he doesn't hurry up. And then when he's done with that, he goes over and he, uh, Chris uh, has him sort the blue folders. And he encourages him and he gives him a treat and, and kind of treats him a little bit like a dog. But we see the two pictures of, of being motivated by fear and being motivated by love. Well, at the end of the experiment... We learned that when Jerry was motivated by fear, he got the job done quickly, but incorrectly. When he was motivated by love, he got the job done correctly, but slowly. Now, the point of the story is not to give you some more insight on how to um, motivate your employees or your friends or your children, when to use a, a quicker motivator, when to use a more accurate motivator, um, we're not trying to figure out when's fear or love better. It's to illustrate the point that we as humans can and are motivated by both fear and love, but that they have different outcomes. Fear as a motivator and love as a motivator are ubiquitous through our lives. Anything that motivates us, we can, we can tie back to, in general, one of those two things. And this very much applies to Christian spirituality. Like this isn't just on a, a TV sitcom. This isn't just even in our workplace. This isn't just in our um, parental relationships or our, our friendships or the things that we choose to engage in, our relationship with the gym. This is very much how uh, we live amongst one another and how we relate to God as well. And so let's think for a second how in our, our ordinary, everyday Christian life might we be motivated. And you will not be surprised that if you take just a little bit of time to think about it, you won't be surprised to know that you're motivated a lot by fear. Personally, um, I'm often motivated by a fear of shame. The world has trained me to fear being embarrassed, to fear being weak and dependent on God. The world wants a, a better version of myself than is my true self, right? And so 
anytime I, I come on stage, anytime I put myself in front of people in relationships, whatever it is, whether it's, it's on Sunday mornings or it's out through the rest of the week, I'm trained by the world to survive with, with a fear of shame, to perform more, to reject um, failure. Some of us are motivated by guilt, fear of guilt. We do what we know we should do because we're afraid of getting in trouble. We're afraid of being wrong. We're afraid of being found out. We're also afraid that uh, if we disobey enough, God will eventually lose patience with us, right? Some of us are motivated by a fear of pain. We'll do whatever it takes. We'll hide at no matter the cost. We'll project a version of ourselves no matter what it takes to avoid being hurt again. Some of us are motivated by a fear of loneliness, that we kind of become a chameleon. We change who we are based on who we're around because we so desperately want to fit in. That we give the world around us the version of us that it wants instead of being who we really are. And, and this happens in the church too. Many of us here this morning have a version of our, a Sunday morning version of ourselves that we bring to church with us or a Wednesday night version of ourselves that we bring with us because we know that version of ourselves will be accepted here. And it doesn't require you being Christian to realize that all of these motivators, and there's more, these four uh, motivations from fear, shame, guilt, pain, loneliness, they're not the only ones. We don't have time to dig into all of the, the motivations of fear. But w- what we need to do is, is realize that we are motivated by fear and that it damages our souls. Um, I, want, I bring these things up and I, and I point out how damaging it is to our souls, not as a way to cause shame or guilt or pain, not to push you away and isolate you. It's not to scold you. But it's to get us to the point where we understand, okay, what is, what is Peter saying here? What is the rest of Scripture saying about what motivates our behavior? Because what when we have learned to respond to a fear of shame or or guilt or whatever it is, that's your survival mechanism. We live in a broken world. We live in a world that's not as it should be. People are not as kind as we should be. The world seems out to get us because it is out to get us, and we've lived to survive. We've learned how to cope with shame and guilt and pain and fear. And so if, if you find yourself in one of these motivations this morning, just trust and understand you've learned to survive in a broken world. But it doesn't have to be that way. We were not made to just survive in a broken world. Peter uh, begins this paragraph, this, the second paragraph, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What he's saying is we weren't made for this world. We don't belong to this world. 
We've learned to survive, but now we must learn to trust and follow Jesus as we live in this world. He teaches us how to make it out, not our fears. And so, like I mentioned, this does damage to our souls. We see at the end of verse 11, he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You're probably familiar with that feeling, right? I don't need to explain what this world does to our souls, do I? We're tired. We're hurt. We're longing for something that this world won't provide for us, that it can't provide for us. The world and our flesh does damage to our souls when we, when we let it guide us. And so I want to explain real quick. He says, passions of the flesh. Um, when we give in to the passions of the flesh, and I'll show you a couple other uh, uh, scriptures in just a second to, to help compare um, this, this war that's going on for our souls. When, when he talks about giving in to the passions of our flesh, that word flesh in the Greek is, is really brought down to like this broken part of our, our humanity. It doesn't actually mean like our skin and, and our muscles. It means the sinful nature that we all inherited. That we're born into sin. We live in a broken world and we are broken people. That's the sinful flesh. And its passions are those desires that lead us to trust anything but God. Paul in Romans 1 shows us that, and then throughout the book of Romans, shows us that our fear, the world and our flesh leverages our fear to motivate us into bondage, to motivate us to find healing and restoration for our wounded souls in anything but God. And so we turn to, and I'm not even going to start to begin a list, because anything that's not Jesus will not heal our souls. But the world and our flesh uses our fear to lead us to try to find healing and restoration in what's in the world or what's in the flesh. You can find more um, like specific details and explanations of that in Galatians 5, in uh, Colossians 3, where it actually says, and this is the work of the flesh. And, and it lists all those things out. But when Paul talks about in Romans um, that, that our fear tempts us to distrust God, or our flesh uses fear to tempt us to distrust God, how do we fight that, that battle? How do we resist, how do we abstain from the passions of the flesh so that our souls are not under attack, but that they're being healed and restored. And, and simply, um, we're talking about turning to Jesus, right? Like, that's the obvious answer. That's like, so Sunday school. Like, how do, we, how do we abstain from the flesh? Well, turn to Jesus. Good job. Sunday, Sunday school question number one. Um, but it's not quite that simple, because how do we turn to Jesus? How do we uh, 
Well, let's look at Romans, Romans 13, 14. It says, put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So we have a little bit of a deeper understanding of that word abstain. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, uh, don't make provision for it. Starve it out. Not, not ignore it. Not act like it's not there. You need to be aware that it's there, but purposefully starve it. Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit. This is, this is like simple and passive, right? If you just walk by the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, then you won't turn to other things to satisfy and heal you. Knowing that this world is not as it should be, that we are not as we should be, knowing that we live in a deeply broken, sinful place is the first step. The second step is, is understanding that there's hope, that we can put on Christ, that we can walk by the Spirit. There's rest for the weary. There's healing for the wounded. There's light in the darkness. There's hope for the hopeless. One more from James 4. The whole uh, first portion of James 4 reminds us that the flesh wages war against our souls. We feel that longing, right? We feel that longing for rest. We feel that longing for um, this war to be over. We feel this longing for light in the darkness. And what does James tell the church in verses seven and eight? He gives us a very clear instruction. He says, knowing that the flesh works against the spirit, turn to God, submit to God. James four, seven and eight. Submit to God, resist the devil. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And so practically, what does it look like? What does it look like for us as, as Christians to put on Christ, to walk by the Spirit, to draw near to God? Well, first, we've got to look at verses uh, in, in our First Peter 2, verses 9 through 10. It's, it's this great declaration of who we are, but if you look specifically uh, towards the end of verse 9, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. So we, we once were in darkness. Once we were not a people. Once we had not received mercy. And what that means is that once we were left out alone. Once we were without God, separated him. Once we were liable to judgment for our wrongdoing. That guilt and shame that we feel, without God, that condemns you and sends you to be apart from him forever. Once we were not a people. We didn't have a father. We didn't have a comforter. We didn't have a friend. We didn't have a helper. But because Jesus lived, died, and rose again, now we do belong to God. 
For those of us who trust in him, we have a father, we have a friend, we have a comforter and a helper. The love of God is what changes and empowers us. And so when we ask the question, what motivates our behavior, what motivates Christian conduct, the language that Peter uses in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. How do we keep our, our conduct honorable? Do you find that hard? Like it's not just that easy to go out or even do it in here. How do we keep our conduct honorable? I can't do that. Practically, what does it mean for us to put on Christ, walk by the Spirit? Because at surface level, just saying that, if I just said, well, we keep our conduct honorable, just put on Christ. Duh. That's what the Bible says. It's not that easy. We can apply the gospel. You probably have heard that before too. That's what it, that's like contemporary terms, put on Christ, walk by the Spirit. It means apply the gospel to your life. Um, maybe a, a more experiential way to describe that is we can only give the love that we receive, right? Like you cannot give something that has not, been given to you that you have not first received. It makes sense. We all like no transactions. You cannot spend money you don't have unless you have a credit card, but then you have to give that money back, right? I'm, I'm getting in the weeds here. You cannot give love that you don't have. Jesus connects, New Testament constantly connects our conduct to our love for God and one another. We cannot give love that we don't first have. And we learn from, from the Apostle John in his letters that we love because God first loved us. And so in order for us to practically keep our conduct honorable, what must we then do? Receive the love of God. In order for us to be loving towards one another and to love God, we must first experience God's love. That's what I mean when I say the love of God motivates our Christian behavior. Because it's not trying better. It's not working harder. It's not memorizing more scripture and getting on your knees for more hours a day. Those are good things. It's not just suck it up and be nice to the person you want to be mean to. We must first experience the love of God so that we can give love to one another and love God in return. And let me spell that out for you. And I'll go through all those, um, those fears that we discussed. So personally, in my shame, and if you're like me and you're motivated by a fear of shame, in my shame, my flesh will tempt me to be impressive. Because that's how I avoid embarrassment, right? I don't have to admit weakness. I don't have to admit failure. I don't have to embarrass myself. The more impressive I can be, the more I can avoid feeling shame. My flesh will tempt me to work, to perform, to be impressive. But to abstain from the flesh simply means you admit you are weak. It simply means I have to get on my knees and confess to God and to myself, I am weak. I cannot perform. I am not impressive. It means that we respond to our shame by 
giving ourselves permission to be weak and dependent on God. For those of us motivated by a fear of guilt, in our guilt, when, when our flesh tempts us to respond to our guilt, we're probably going to respond in, in probably two ways. It could be one or the other, but it's most likely both. That we will either work ourselves exhausted to be better than everyone else, and we'll also blame everyone else. In our guilt, our flesh will tempt us to work harder to be better, but then see fault in everyone around us, to point a critical finger at others and ourselves. That's what we call works righteousness. That is anti-gospel. If you read Galatians, Paul has some pretty harsh feelings about people propagating this type of gospel. To abstain from the flesh means just simply admit that you are guilty. Admit that you are a sinner. Admit that you do put faith in works. When we come to God and we confess that to him, then we can trust that he's forgiven us, that he sent his son to die on a cross just for that. We can admit our guilt and receive the love of God through the forgiveness of our sin. In our pain, we'll be tempted to use people as therapy or be mean to people as a way, a retribution. So we feel hurt, so we want to hurt back. Abstaining from the flesh is simply admitting to Jesus that you are hurting. You admit to Jesus that you are in pain and you look to him and you trust him to be your comforter, to be your healer, to know exactly what the pain feels like. That is why Jesus became a human. God put on flesh so that he could feel your pain so that he could comfort you in your pain. He's with us in the Holy Spirit. I'm about to reference John 14 through 16, and there's a line um, in John 14 where uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, don't worry, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to be with you forever. And when I read that a few days ago, a few weeks ago, I just froze. And I felt my loneliness and I felt my pain and I, I just felt like, what a gift that God himself has promised to be with us, to be present. And that's it. That's all we need. Our pain finds healing when the presence of Jesus is with us through the Holy Spirit. And sometimes prayer just looks like 
being with Jesus, not saying anything, not trying to listen for anything. We just get on our face or while we're driving or in the five seconds we have between kids coming to find us in the bathroom, we just close our eyes and we say, Jesus, I just need you to be with me. And you just meditate on his presence. His nearness heals. It's supernatural. And that goes into our loneliness. In our loneliness, our flesh will tempt us to push people away. It'll tempt us to create a version of ourselves that doesn't need people. We've been rejected so much, I don't need people now. I don't, I'm, not a, I'm not a friend's guy. Man, that's loneliness. We were made to need people. We were made to need one another in the church. To find intimacy with other people. Our flesh will tempt us to isolate. It'll tempt us to give up on pursuing healthy relationships. But it's abstaining from the flesh means that you, you confess to Jesus. You admit that you feel alone. You admit your loneliness to God. You admit that you've been rejected. And then you, you just remember, whether it's uh, the Spirit reminds you or you're reading Scripture or the church around you reminds you, you remember that you are not alone. That Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit to be with us. If you put your faith in Christ... You literally are never alone. For some of us, that makes us terrified. For some of us, that is a great encouragement and comfort. The Spirit is with you. I don't think we understand that concept of withness. I might have just made that word up. Withness. We have a problem, like really letting that be something that heals us because we have a problem being with people. We have a problem also being with ourselves. We're so caught up in the busyness and the hurry that we forget to be present. And so we, we start to lose value in the presence of Jesus for us. And there's no other place to be healed by the presence of Jesus than in prayer. In our loneliness, we can turn to Jesus to be with us, to be our friend. What an incredible promise and blessing that Jesus says in John 15 and 14, you're my friends. I'm not going to leave you. You're my friends. Do we know, like, does your soul find healing and comfort just in that, like knowing Jesus is your friend? If it doesn't, that's okay. It's going to take some time. But just meditate on that. Contemplate that. Wonder, do I even know what it means to be a friend? To have a friend? Maybe not. And that's okay. But the promise of Jesus is that he is with you. That he is your friend. That when you are hurt, he's hurt with you. When you are angry, he's angry with you. When you're sad, he grieves with you. That's a friend. Um, I've already made reference to it, but towards the end of John's gospel, uh, 
14 through 16, Jesus is sitting with his disciples. And he's reminding them of something he said to them hundreds of times probably. It's recorded dozens of times throughout the gospel stories that, that he says this, but he reminds them he's about to die. And they respond, they're sad, they're afraid, they're questioning him, they're trying to understand what he means, they're trying to understand, when he says, I'm going away, where is he going? I don't get it. In their fear, they're responding to Jesus, and, and he so patiently, he simply and mercifully responds to them as their friend. It's 91 verses, so this is going to take a minute, okay? I'm just kidding. Um, I'm going to summarize these three chapters. When I, when I say this, I'm going to read it because it's awkward if I'm looking at you saying the words of Jesus as if it's me. But when I say this, I just want you to receive this as, as Jesus, your friend and your healer and your savior, your comforter, saying this to you. So, so think about this motivation of shame or, or um, loneliness, whatever it is that you're afraid of. Think about Jesus saying this to you. If you need to close your eyes, that's fine. But Jesus says this to his friends. He says, I'm going away. And I know you're afraid. I know that you're anxious. I know that scares you, but you don't have to stay in your fear. Do not let your hearts stay troubled. I'm not going to leave you all alone. Though I go, I will come to you. I'm going to send you my spirit, and he's going to be with you forever. He's going to be with you forever. And he'll teach you all the things I taught you so you can forget. I'll remind you. But remain in me. Stay with me. Abide in me. And you will bear much fruit. You will, I promise. So what is it that motivates our obedience? What motivates our conduct and our behavior as Christians? It's the love of God. It's experiencing the love of Jesus. If you're not motivated by the love of God, you're motivated by something else. It's probably fear. Let's look again at, at uh, verse 12 in First Peter. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. We've already learned that we do that through receiving the love of God. So that, so why is it important for our conduct to be honorable? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation is uh, Jesus coming back to, to take all of his church home. We don't, we're sojourners and exiles. We don't belong here. The day of visitation is us going home with Jesus to be in heaven with him forever. New, new heavens, new earth, new creation. But the purpose of our honorable conduct, the purpose of our receiving love, that we would love one another and love God, the whole purpose of that was that it would put on display our transformation 
They would bring glory to God. And when God is glorified, his people come to him. Whether for the first time as a brand new follower and disciple or for the thousandth time, when God is glorified, his people will come to him. And when you come to him, you will be changed and you will find rest for your soul and you will bear much fruit. Draw near to God. Put on Jesus. Keep in step with the Spirit. Abide. Remain. And we as a church were designed to find our motivation, our satisfaction in the love of God. It works against our flesh. So it's, it's going to be a battle. But keep receiving the love of God.